I love that line in that song, who else invites me to call him father? That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we get back into our study of the book of Romans. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, and we'll pick up where we left off several weeks back. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, one of the most precious, powerful passages, not just in the book of Romans, but in the entire New Testament. And so I know the lights are going to come on momentarily. There you go. Now you can actually see your Bibles, right? Romans chapter 8. Just read along in your Bibles as I read here. Paul writes, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Father, we're thankful to be able to address you as Father. What a blessed text this is, Lord, that in just... uh, 40 or so minutes, um, we're just going to be scratching the surface. Other better preachers than me have spent um, weeks, if not months, preaching on these four brief verses. But I pray, Lord, that as we look into this text this morning, that your spirit would illuminate us, help us to understand what Paul meant by what he said here and how it applies to our lives. And that we would all be able to walk out of here today knowing for sure, without any doubt, that we are one of your kids. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most staggering truths that God reveals in his word is that before the world began, based solely on his love, kindness, and grace, he sovereignly chose to adopt rebellious hell-bound sinners like you and like me, so we could be his beloved children. And as an intimate, permanent member of God's family, we are in line to receive an unimaginable inheritance in heaven. One of my favorite places in the New Testament where Paul talks about this concept of adoption is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and if you would turn with me there quickly, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In this passage, Paul trace the amazing plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future and highlighted the specific role that each member of the Godhead plays in a person's salvation. The Father elects us, the Son redeems us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. Now back in Romans chapter 8, Paul was highlighting the specific role that the Holy Spirit plays in regards to a person's sanctification. And the grand theme of Romans chapter 8, if you remember, is that the Holy Spirit, or is how the Holy Spirit provides assurance for believers uh, who still live in a sin-cursed world and are still incarcerated in a, a sinful body and therefore still struggle with sin and suffering. I think it's... Um, Interesting how the very first verse of chapter 8, Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the very last verse, verse 39, it says, nothing, uh, height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you start, he starts with no condemnation and he ends with no separation. This is all about the assuring work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And here, in each and every verse of our text, verses 14 through 17, Paul refers to believers as sons or daughters of God or the children of God. Notice every one of the verses talks about that. Now, before we dive in here and unpack these, these verses together, I want to make an important statement that I think will set the tone for this message. There are some presumptuous people, and there may be some of those here today, who assume they are a child of God when they're not. At the same time, there may be some timorous or timid people here today who assume they are not a child of God, but they actually are. You're probably in one of two of those one or one of those two categories. You're either assuming you are a child of God when you're actually not, or you're assuming you're not a child of God when you actually are. See, the former think that by virtue of the fact that God created everyone, that everyone is a child of God. And granted, as the creator, God is the father of all mankind. 
Paul mentioned that in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, on uh, the, the uh, Mars Hill uh, address. He said, God made the world and all things in it. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. For in him we live and move and exist. We are his offspring. So in a general sense, as God being our creator, that, yeah, we are all, um, God is the father of all mankind. But as savior, God is the father of only those who repent of their sin and believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for their sin so they could be reconciled to God. See, there's a whole lot of well-meaning people who believe that at birth, they were automatically born into the family of God. The Pharisees thought that just because they had been born into the family of Abraham, that made them God's children. And Jesus confronted that hypocritical presumption of the Jewish religious leaders and said, you are of your father who? The devil. Wow. Well, the Bible does say there's only two families you can be a part of. Only two daddies you can have. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So every human being is either a member of God's family or a member of Satan's family. And just being born isn't enough to make you a child of God. You must be born, what? Again. You must be spiritually reborn. And that's what Jesus himself said in John chapter 3. In that midnight talk with Nicodemus, who was uh, apparently the premier teacher in Israel at the time, and he came to Jesus under the cover of night to settle his curiosity. He had lots of questions. And so Jesus said to him in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus was referring to the miracle of regeneration. When the Holy Spirit comes like a wind, if you will, uh, you feel it, but you just can't see it. But the Holy Spirit comes and brings a spiritually dead person back to life and cleanses them from all their sin, past, present, and future. But that's not all. The Holy Spirit, the moment a person repents and believes, takes up residence in every new believer and begins the process of renewing or remaking them into the likeness of Christ. It's what we refer to as sanctification, the, the transformation 
that happens in our lives that's produced by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions it in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he saved us. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So if you've not been born again by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that you are still a child of Satan. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will be a child of God. That's what Jesus promised in John 1.12. He said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so if you have received Jesus as God's gift of salvation, in other words, you believe that he is the only way that you can be forgiven for your sin and escape hell is by faith in his life, death, and resurrection in your place, then you can have the confidence that you're a child of God. Now, as I said earlier, there may be some of you here today who have repented of your sin. You have placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, but you still lack the assurance that you're a child of God. You doubt whether or not you're truly saved. But whether you're here this morning wrongly assuming that you are a child of God or wrongly assuming that you aren't a child of God, this passage is for you. Because in this passage, Paul explained how you can know for sure whether, you're not, whether or not you're one of God's kids. Two of the most important roles of the Holy Spirit is, number one, to convict people that they aren't saved, and to, number two, convince people that they are saved. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to use this passage this morning to convict some of you who think you're saved and you're not, and at the same time, convince some of you that are saved, but maybe are doubting that this morning. And so what I, what I, what I want us to see this morning here in this text is, is five marks, five marks of a true child of God. And if you have a note sheet in front of you, you can see these five marks. Uh, they're accompanied, a true child of God is accompanied by the Spirit, adopted by the Spirit, affirmed by the Spirit, awarded by the Spirit, and afflicted by the Spirit. Or another way to look at this passage, you could say that there are five ways here to know for sure that you're truly saved. Five ways that you can know for sure that you're truly saved. That, in other words, your life will be marked by holiness and closeness and boldness and hopefulness and likeness. So we'll explain each of these as we go. But first of all, the first mark of a, of a true child of God or the first way to know for sure that you are truly saved is that you are accompanied by the Spirit, you're accompanied by the Spirit. Notice verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, Paul was not referring here to how the Holy Spirit provides God's children guidance or direction, which he does when we need to know what college we should go to or what job we should take or who we should marry or what house we should buy. We know that the Spirit provides guidance and direction, but I don't think that's the kind of guidance and direction that Paul had in mind here when he talks about those who are being led by the Spirit of God. Notice that this verse is linked by a conjunction with the previous verse. 
Notice it says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So we have to go back to the previous verse to find out what he's referring to. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the context of verse 14 is all about not living according to your sinful flesh, but mortifying or killing sinful habit patterns in our lives. So it seems that in this context, what Paul was saying is that one of the evidences that a person is a child of God is the Spirit leads and guides and directs and controls and empowers them to aggressively, and I would even add successfully, put to death everything in their lives that keeps them from being holy and pleasing to their Heavenly Father. Cranfield is the classic commentator on the book of Romans, and this is what he said about this verse. He said, quote, the daily, hourly putting to death the schemings and enterprises of the sinful flesh by means of the Spirit is a matter of being led, directed, impelled, controlled by the Spirit. And so this first point is very simple. If your life is marked by a passion for holiness... In other words, you really want to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. You can rest assured that you're one of God's kids. What's the second mark of a true child of God? Or another way to know for sure that you're truly saved? Well, you've been adopted by the Spirit, which has created a closeness between you and the Lord. Notice verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. If you've been with us um, throughout our study of the book of Romans, you know that in the first seven chapters, Paul has explained that apart from Christ, everyone is a slave of sin under God's wrath who lives in fear of punishment, namely death and hell. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he became a man like us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Paul says that's no longer true of you. You no longer have to live as a slave who fears the wrath of God, who fears the punishment. Why? Because you've received in its place, a spirit of adoption as sons. This is one of Paul's favorite analogies that he often used to describe the believer's position in Christ. If you just flip over to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4 is uh, the other main passage talking about adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of adoption, but I think it's important that we understand that Paul borrowed this picture of adoption from the Greco-Roman custom of adoption, which was an important legal institution in those days. When a child was adopted, all their past debts were canceled and their former life was completely wiped out as if they had never existed. And they were given all the rights and privileges of a natural born son and they were considered the lawful heir of everything their adopting father owned. Douglas Moo, another capable commentator uh, in the book of Romans, made this comment. He said, quote, the Roman emperor Julius Caesar, for instance, adopted a young man named Octavian who became, by that act, the heir to the Roman Empire. Eventually, he became emperor, changing his name to Augustus. And then he goes on, he says, in a similar manner, Paul suggested here that God, the ruler of the universe, has adopted us as his heirs. And that's what we see, not only in Galatians chapter 4, but here in Romans chapter 8, that God, being rich in mercy and compassion, sovereignly seeks out sinful, smelly, snotty-nosed, rebellious orphans, like you and like me, and adopts us and wipes away all of our sin and invites us to live with him in his heavenly estate and enjoy all the benefits and privileges that come with being one of his kids. This is the blessing of salvation. We go from living in the squalor of our sin to living in the splendor of God's love. And rather than cowering in God's presence, we can now approach him with the boldness and the confidence of a beloved child climbing into their daddy's lap. And as Paul said here, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father, which is an Aramaic term that was commonly used by young Jewish children to address their father. It would be equivalent to our daddy or papa. It was an expression of intimacy and familiarity modeled by Jesus himself when he prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He cried out to him, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Again, just a picture of the intimacy and the familiarity that Jesus had with God, his Father. And this, this, this rattled the Jews, that Jesus was so intimate, or at least claimed to be so intimate and familiar with the Father, because they would never dare address God in such a personal way. And yet this was how Jesus taught his disciples to approach God in prayer. When you pray, pray this, our what? Father who art in heaven. Well, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy for calling God his father. But just like Jesus, as God's sons and daughters, we too can enjoy the same kind of intimacy and familiarity with God. 
And so if your life is marked by a closeness to God that you truly enjoy and intimate personal relationship with your heavenly father, you can rest assured that you're one of God's kids. Well, there's a third mark of a true child of God or another way we can know for sure that we are saved, and that is we are affirmed by the Spirit, which creates a boldness in our hearts and our minds. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And the word testify is, is the key word in this verse, obviously. And to testify means to serve as a witness in a court of law, right? Uh, this, this person is going to testify on my behalf. It's, it's providing a testimony. Someone provides a testimony that proves that something is true or false. And in Jewish culture... In order for something to be established or confirmed as true or false, it required the testimony of at least two witnesses. And so, in other words, it's not enough for you to say, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that I'm saved. And it's not enough just for the Spirit to confirm that you're saved. There needs to be both witnesses at large in your life. And so Paul was saying that when the Holy Spirit indwells us, he serves as an inner, inner witness who validates that we're truly saved. He provides corroborating or supporting evidence along with our own spirit to confirm in our hearts and our minds that we are indeed one of God's children. Now, this is not a, just some still small voice whispering in our heads but this is an inner awareness that the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts or in our consciences, maybe, is a better way to understand it. What are some of the, the ways that the Holy Spirit affirms or confirms that we are indeed one of God's children? I think there are some evidences, there are some proofs that the Holy Spirit uses to affirm that we are a child of God. Number one would be the production of fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talk about how the Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against this thing, there is no law. If we, if we see these things being produced in our lives, these are things we can't produce ourselves. We can't manufacture these things. These are things the Holy Spirit has to do in our lives. And so if we see those things developing in our lives, growing in our lives, getting better in our lives, that is confirmation, that is affirmation, that is proof that we are a child of God. How about animation for evangelism and service, Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even the uttermost part of the earth. Part of the earth. But what did he say? And you'll receive power, right, from the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses. And so when we see power and boldness, courage, a burden for the lost, an eagerness to serve. These are things, again, we can't manufacture, but the Spirit of God working these things in our lives and empowering us, uh, burdening us, enabling us to share the gospel and to serve others. That's evidence that we are a child of God. And then 
Another way, I think another evidence that God uses, the Spirit of God uses to affirm the word his children is illumination of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, if you're sitting here and all of this sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook and it makes no sense to you, um, or you're bored out of your mind, and uh, you have no interest in the Word of God, that's probably because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Because you have to have the Spirit of God in order to, number one, have a desire for the Word, but then to be able to understand the Word. And so if you have a desire for the Word of God and as, uh, to read the Word of God and hear the Word of God and study the Word of God, and if you, as you read it and you study it, not that you understand everything immediately, but as you study it and you pray over it, that the Spirit of God gives you insight into what, a verse or a passage means, that's proof, that's affirmation that you have the Spirit of God in you, which means that you are a child of God. Again, these are all things which serve as undeniable evidence that you are indwelt by the Spirit, again, which proves and confirms that you're a child of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not a child of God. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, based on these evidences, you are a child of God. And so if your life is marked by a boldness, that you really have a deep-rooted confidence in your innermost being that you are a child of God, you can rest assured that you are one of God's kids. Another mark of a child of God is that they're awarded by the Spirit, which creates a hopefulness, um, a confidence. Verse 17 he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is one of the most exciting things about being a Christian or a child of God is contemplating the mind-blowing spiritual riches and blessings and privileges of God's eternal kingdom. Because as... Paul said here, as children of God, we are heirs of God, which means we will receive all that God has promised. Our future inheritance is secure. There's no way we can lose it. No one can steal it from us. And by the way, it doesn't have to be divided up so we end up with just a little bit of it. We get a full measure. All of us get a full measure of the inheritance, right? Some of you maybe have received some inheritance and you had to divide it up amongst all the family members and what was a large sum became a little sum, right? We, we get the whole thing. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so when we get to heaven, it's like we will inherit our Father's estate. Everything he owns will become ours. And it's not so much that we're like greedy, you know, oh, I can't wait to get my dad's inheritance. 
because he's got a lot of stuff. Ultimately, our inheritance is God himself. That's what get, should get us most excited about heaven. Like the Levites in Deuteronomy chapter 18, they didn't get a piece of land, right? When the land was being, the land of Canaan, the, or the promised land was being divided up among all the tribes of Israel, the Levites didn't get anything. Why? Because their inheritance was to serve the Lord as the spiritual leaders of the nation. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Paul says we're not only heirs of God, but also, notice verse 17, and fellow heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ, whom God appointed heir of all things, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And we should consider Jesus as our big brother, our older brother. Here in Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus is the firstborn son. He's our older brother. But he loves us so much that he has actually prayed, he prayed when he was here on this earth, that God would allow us to share in his glorious inheritance. Remember that? In the upper room, John 17, verses 22 through 24, he prayed that we would uh, enjoy his glory along with him in heaven. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we already quoted this earlier. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we get everything that belongs to Jesus. He was the he was made appointed heir of all things. He gets everything that God has. And guess what? He shares it all with us. We, we get it too. And so if your life is marked by this kind of hopefulness that you really, truly can't wait for Jesus to come back or call you home so that you can experience the glories of heaven and reign with him for all eternity, then you can rest assured that you are one of God's kids. But if you're like, ah, Jesus coming back, yeah, whatever. I'm enjoying my life here on this earth. This is what I'm living for. Probably an indication you're not one of God's kids. And then lastly, the fifth mark of a, of a true child of God, another way you can know for sure that you're saved is that you are afflicted by the Spirit. Or another way to say that is there is a likeness between you and Christ, when it comes to suffering, notice the catch here, okay? Verse 17, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Probably better translated that if should be since or because. 
In other words, since indeed, or because indeed, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, for us to enjoy the glories of heaven, we must also endure the agonies of earth. It's a package deal. Jesus had to suffer all sorts of pain and trials and heartaches and even death here on earth before he could return to his glory in heaven. He had to bear the cross before he could wear the crown. And even so, we shouldn't expect to share his glory if we're not willing to share his suffering. And Jesus told his followers that, that we would experience all sorts of tribulations and be treated just like he was. Hey, a, a servant is no better than his master. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And in this world, you have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Peter was one of those disciples who was sitting there listening to Jesus' warnings in the upper room. And this is what he wrote later in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of, sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Peter got it, and so did Paul. You may remember when Paul was radically converted on his way to Damascus to capture Christians, Jesus told Ananias, who was to... Um, speak with him and, and give him direction. He said this, quote, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And as you know, like Paul, or excuse me, like Jesus, Paul's entire life and ministry was marked by pain and hardship. And yet he rejoiced in that he was able to do his part and filling up was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Look at 2 Corinthians quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, love this passage. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then he goes on just a few verses later. Love this, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then watch this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In other words, no matter how hard or long the pain and suffering is that we experience here on earth, it is, relatively speaking, trivial and minor in comparison to the eternal blessings that we will experience in heaven when we're finally united with Christ in his glory. In 
fact, that's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Back in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the very next verse, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We'll look more at that next week. But if your life is marked by a likeness to Christ, in other words, you really are suffering for his namesake, you're being hated, you're being persecuted like he was, then you can rest assured that you are one of God's kids. You know, I was thinking that um, people find their identity in all sorts of things, their home, their cars, their stuff, their hobbies, their career, their ministry. But for many people, their identity is wrapped up in their family. Isn't it? Who you're married to, who your kids are, who your parents are, who your brothers and sisters are, who you're related to. Well, whether we have a good family that brings us a lot of joy, or even if we're part of a bad family that brings us a lot of pain, our ultimate identity should be that we are an adopted son or daughter of God whom he loves more than anyone ever will or ever could. And what a great privilege we have as children of God to share the gospel with people who are longing, it seems today, for what? A forever family or a forever home. Guess what? We've got one. We're a part of a forever family. We have a forever home. And it's not what you're watching on HGTV, right? It's heaven. That's our forever home. And we have the privilege and the honor and the blessing of sharing that good news with others and helping other people realize how they can have that same joy and they can identify with Christ and with the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage that is very clear about how we can know for sure whether or not we're one of your kids. And I pray that uh, for those that are maybe who came here today, assuming that they were a child of God, just by nature of the fact that they were created by you, that you would help them to see that if they've not been born again by your spirit, they've not repented of their sin and place their faith in Christ and his work on the cross alone for their salvation, that, that they are not a child of, of you, but they're a child of the devil. And that you would motivate them and give them that desire, Lord, and by your spirit, that you would regenerate them, give them a desire and the ability to repent and believe today. And Lord, for those that have come who are truly your children, they have repented, they have believed, but they're struggling with the assurance of their salvation. They, they're doubting 
whether or not they're, they're really one of your children, Lord, that you would give them confidence and hope this morning based on this text, that they are a, a true child of God and that they are loved more than anyone could ever be loved because of your great love that you've set upon them. Lord, and give us, um, give us joy this week and excitement and enthusiasm to get to share this good news with others who are desperately longing for that forever family, that forever home, Lord, that we could bring um, this message to them this week and to share it with them with love and with grace and with, with uh, great boldness, we, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it's great to have you here this morning. If you would like to speak with anyone about uh, what you just heard, uh, or speak with someone, I should say, about what you just heard, we've got a couple of our uh, elders available to, to minister to you. If you have questions, you have um, a desire to, to learn more about what it means to be a Christian, if you just need somebody to pray for you, uh, please come and talk to one of our elders up here in the front. Uh, the rest of you, uh, you guys have a great uh, week, and um, if, you visit, if you are a visitor today, don't forget to stop by uh, our welcome desk as you leave, all right? You guys are dismissed. Thank you.